Just one announcement, and that is that on uh, Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, and uh, you guys think about that time, it, we could go earlier. I don't want them to go much later, but we could go an hour earlier if you wanted to. And uh, whoever's coming to that class on Sunday night, we're going to start a sort of a, not really a Bible study methods type of course, but how to get into the Greek a little more using some of the tools for non-Greek students. So that'll be a bit of a challenge open to everybody. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for approof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Ready to study God's Word, filled with the Spirit. A few moments of silent prayer in order in case you need to use 1 John 1 9, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who has declared the end from the beginning that all of human history is the outworking of your plan and is a demonstration for all time and eternity of your grace. How your grace, how your righteousness, and how your justice are perfectly compatible with one another, demonstrating the lie of Satan's charge, demonstrating that there is no other way for life for creatures to exist other than in complete submission to you. Now, Father, as we continue our study on your plan for human history. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and, and that we would be challenged by them, realizing what a unique privilege it is for us to be believer priests, members of your royal family, and dwelt and filled by God the Holy Spirit with this unique spiritual life of the church age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we began our study on dispensations and covenants, God's plan for the ages. By way of review, we uh, uh, looked at some key words like chronos and kairos for times and epochs in Acts 1.5, talking about the different uh, ways in which God looks at history, both in terms of ages and in terms of the succession of the ages. We looked at the word ionos for age, which emphasizes the time dimension of dispensations, as well as oikonomos, which is the Greek noun for stewardship or administration. That's the word that is normally translated dispensation. Dispensation is one of those words that we don't always understand today, and that is the main idea of the Greek concept is that God administers history in different ways, different stages at different times. So that led us to see dispensation and define dispensation as a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. 
When we say it's identifiable, that means that every dispensation has certain characteristics, so we are able to determine what they are and uh, be able to define one and, and determine when one begins and one ends. We saw there are two major schools of interpretation of the Scriptures. I don't care who you are, you fall into one of these two classifications. There are dispensationalists, and there are those who hold to some form of replacement theology. Now, what do I mean by replacement theology? Replacement theology is a broad term referring to any view that where the church replaces the nation Israel in God's plan, such that God's promises and prophecies for the nation Israel are not literally fulfilled in the future, but are instead spiritually fulfilled by the church. That's replacement theology. Israel is replaced by the church. Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, uh, almost every branch of Reformed theology, covenant theology, uh, almost every aspect, uh, every branch of Protestant theology holds to some form of replacement uh, theology. To do that, you have to allegorize and spiritualize certain promises. In my opinion, if you do that, you make God a liar because God promised that He would give certain things specifically to Israel in the Old Testament. And if uh, and those were there were no conditions attached to those promises. And if you say that God uh, abrogated those promises, then you're basically saying that God is a liar. I think that's the inescapable conclusion of every form of replacement theology. We looked at various misconceptions of dispensation, such as that it holds to two different ways of salvation. We saw that that was false, that in dispensationalism, uh, it has always been taught that people are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, You either look forward to the cross in the Old Testament or look back to the cross in the New Testament, but it's always faith alone in Christ alone. And then towards the conclusion, we examined the meaning of the word oikonomos and its various cognates and determined that the Scripture uses these words in much the same way as dispensationalists. And then we concluded by looking at how dispensationalism has been defined by some of its teachers. So now we are in... Lesson 2 of God's Plan for the Ages. And I want to go back and just pick up where we were closing last time at various definitions of dispensationalism. I don't think anybody has said the final word, although I think each person who perhaps has written a definition thinks they captured it all. But you will notice that there are certain things that every one of these definitions has in common. Schofield, of course, is considered the father of dispensationalism by people who don't know their history very well. Uh, he is the great popularizer. Dispensa- he lived a hundred years ago. He was a Confederate war hero, a lawyer who became an alcoholic after the war. And when he was in his early 30s, someone witnessed to him and he became a believer and then uh, educated himself under a couple of well-known pastors at that time, one of whom was a man named James Hall Brooks, who pastored a congregational church, or excuse me, a Presbyterian church in St. Louis. And from him, Schofield learned dispensationalism because it was becoming very popular at that time. And Schofield, of course, later in life edited a study Bible 
which has become quite famous, called the Schofield Reference Bible, and has done more to popularize dispensationalism than anything else, but it would have been popular even without him. Schofield defined a dispensation this way. It's a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. A period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Now, the problem with his definition is it doesn't focus on the administration aspect, the management aspect. It focuses on dispensation as primarily a time as opposed to an administration. Uh, You can't separate the two, but the temporal element is not the foremost concept in the word oikonomos. Then another man who was quite well known during the early part of this uh, century, Graham Scroggie, wrote that the word oikonomia bears one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or property, of a state or a nation, or as in the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it at any given time. Just as a patient or a parent would govern his household in different ways, according to varying necessity, yet ever for one good end. So God has at different times dealt with men in different ways, according to the necessity of the case, but throughout for one great grand end. And one of the important things to notice here is he indicates that, first of all, there are distinctions between the dispensations, but there are also certain common themes and threads that run through all the dispensations. And one of the caricatures that people who uh, uh, don't know dispensationalism use is the idea that, well, everything's different, and so therefore you have different ways of salvation, and that's not true. Ryrie has the most concise form. One thing I always loved about Dr. Ryrie, had him in class many times at Dallas Seminary, is that he is the master of, uh, of concise definitions. I don't think anybody is more economic with the word than Dr. Ryrie. He pulls it down to the most basic elements. A dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purposes. Economy, of course, is an English word that transliterates the Greek oikonomia. You can hear the similarity, economy, oikonomia. And uh, he emphasizes that aspect. It's the outworking of God's purposes in each administration. And then, Pastor Theme in Divine Outline of History says that it is a, a dispensation is a period of human history emphasizing the time factor, expressed in terms of divine revelation. Each stage has new revelation. History is a sequence of divine administrations divided into eras, each having unique characteristics as well as certain functions in common with the other ages. These consecutive eras reflect the unfolding of God's plan for mankind. They constitute the divine viewpoint of history and the theological interpretation of history. Now, that last sentence is really important because dispensationalism really gives us a biblical view of history. One of the things that that maybe you ran into when you were growing up and you had to take history classes is it just seemed like a whole lot of data, events, and facts and didn't have any meaning. Only the Christian has a frame of reference 
because of a biblical view of history. And only as a dispensationalist do you have the best uh, view of history can you go back and really see why history matters. Because it's going somewhere. It is indeed God's plan for the human race. So having looked at all of these various uh, definitions of dispensation, I wrote out my own version. A dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Now, that emphasizes the fact that each administration has identifiable characteristics that we can uh, highlight and know when we move from one, dis- one administration to another. It is thought through. It relates to God's plan and his omniscience and how God devised the strategy for human history from eternity past, that it is related to specific purposes that he has for human history, and that will tie it in to the angelic conflict and understanding that the outworking of human history plays a part in the uh, appeal of Satan to God from his trial in eternity past. You cannot separate an understanding of dispensations from Satan's rebellion against God and God's purposes for creating the human race as an experiment. Now, sometimes people think of an experiment as uh, doing something to see what will happen. That's not a correct definition. A true experiment is designed to go through certain actions in order to demonstrate a truth. And you're in the science lab in chemistry. I remember taking kitchen chemistry when I was in college. And uh, that was for liberal arts majors, so we wouldn't have to stress our brains too much. That we knew what would happen when we conducted the experiments. We knew exactly what would happen. But we were demonstrating those truths and those principles. So one meaning of an experiment is to demonstrate that something is true. That's why human history is an experiment in that sense. It is to demonstrate God's grace and his love and his mercy and that God's grace and love are compatible with his justice and righteousness. And that relates specifically to Satan's charge in eternity past that how could a just and loving God cast his creatures into a lake of fire? And God said, well, just wait a minute and I will show you how my grace and love are completely compatible with justice and righteousness and that it is only when the creature is completely submissive to my will that they can find absolute happiness, and we will demonstrate that through the use of man's volition, so that when Adam uh, disobeyed God in the garden, God's grace provided a solution that would not uh, compromise his justice and righteousness, but would provide salvation for the creature and demonstrate that volition is the issue. Not God's injustice or Satan's power, but human volition is the issue. And so man was created with volition just as the angels were created with volition so that man could mirror, would mirror the same conditions that applied when Satan fell, demonstrating that the issue was volition and volition alone. So my first sentence is that a dispensation is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. A closely connected but not interchangeable word is age, the Greek word ion, which introduces the time element. So it covers a period of time. 
God manages the entirety of human history. That puts, keeps God on the throne as sovereign, yet in the divine decrees, God has worked it out and determined that his sovereignty coexists with human freedom during human history. God manages the entirety of human history as a household, moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration, so that in each age, different doctrines, different factors are on display. In the age of Israel, for example, it was demonstrated that that man on his own, apart from from, uh, God's help, could not even approximate the demands of God. So in the church age, we're given God the Holy Spirit to help us understand doctrine better and to apply doctrine. And then in the millennial age, there will be no, um, there will be perfect environment. And there will be, the curse will be rolled back on the physical environment so that the lion will lie down with the lamb and the child will put his hand in a cobra's den. And in perfect environment, man will still reject the grace of God, thus demonstrating the issue isn't environment, the issue isn't government, the issue isn't any other factor other than man's own negative volition. So each stage demonstrates certain facets of the truth about uh, God's perfect righteousness and justice and how God in his grace, which is compatible with his justice and righteousness, has supplied everything for man. And only by complete and total reliance upon, man, upon God can we ex- have all that God has for us. That the creature cannot succeed in any way at all on his own terms. And finally, in the last sentence, each administrative period is characterized by revelation. There's always additional revelation given at the change of a dispensation. Characterized by revelation that specifies responsibilities, a test in relation to those responsibilities, a failure to pass the test, and God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. Now, having looked at all those dispensations and sort of muddled your minds a little bit, let's see what they have in common. First of all, in the, dis- the distinct elements of human history, uh, of all these definitions, the distinct elements look at history from the viewpoint of God. God is always the issue. We always start with God and never from man. This is one of the greatest sources of problems in theology, in churches, in people's lives, is we start from our experience rather than starting with what God has said. So we begin with God's viewpoint. Second, In terms of dispensation, there is a clear time when one ends and another begins. There is a clear demarcation. There is not sort of a a fade in and fade out over a long period of time. Now, there are transition periods. For example, death on the cross was the end of the law, according to Romans 14. Yet, Christ was on the earth for 40 days before he ascended, and it was another 10 days before the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost to begin the church age. So you have a 50-day transition period there that's neither fish nor fowl. It's not really Old Testament Mosaic law, but it's not church age under the Holy Spirit yet either. I think there's going to be another short transition like that between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. If you don't know it, it always surprises some people. They think the rapture starts the tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. 
tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's why it's always fascinating to watch all these peace talks in the Middle East. So if you see somebody signing a major peace treaty and all your friends disappear, <laughs> better come down here, break in, and get some tapes. Dispensations emphasize the divine administration of history, that it's not just a collection of haphazard events, it's not ruled by chance, but that God is moving everything in a specific direction. And then fourth, a new revelation designates the shift from one dispensation to another. There's all... Just because there's new revelation doesn't mean there's automatically a dispensational shift. But at every dispensational shift, there will be accompanying new revelation that goes along with it. For example, the Noahic Covenant gave new revelation, and there's a shift in dispensation. There was new revelation given to Abraham, shift in dispensation. New revelation given to Moses, shift in dispensation. New revelation given in the church age, shift in dispensation. Like a good dispensationalist, I have seven observations. Those of you who are new to this don't realize that older dispensations used to always define everything in terms of seven of this or three of that, seven of this, so it's sort of an inside joke. Fifth, some things remain the same, others are different. For example, salvation is always by faith alone in Christ alone. The, the object is the same, but we're either anticipating it or looking back. Some things are different. In the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices anticipated Christ's atonement. In the millennial age, or in the church age, there are no animal sacrifices. In the millennial kingdom, there will be a return to animal sacrifices. But they are not the same animal sacrifices or for the same purpose. They're for Israel And they function for Israel in the same way that the Lord's table functions for the church as a memorial to what Christ has done for them. If you compare the uh, sacrifices in Ezekiel 40 and following with the Levitical offerings, you'll see there's a vast difference. It's not the same thing. It's talking about a completely different sacrificial system. So some things remain the same. Others change from dispensation to dispensation. Sixth, Each dispensation has its own responsibilities and tests. Each dispensation has its own responsibilities and tests. In the church age, the test is, are we going to be filled with the Spirit and advance through learning doctrine under the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit to advance to spiritual maturity? And then seventh, each successive stage moves God's plan closer to conclusion. There is an end to history. It doesn't just go on and on and on. There is a definite plan with a definite ending. Now, how do we know when a new dispensation begins? What's the criteria? Well, a previous generation, there was a man named Eric Sauer. I don't know if any of you have some of his books. Uh, He was European. And he wrote a number of books that um, were widely read back in the 40s and 50s, translated into English. And Sauer states the criteria. A new period always begins when, from the side of God, 
a change, notice always God-centered, from the side of God, a change is introduced in the competition, in the composition of the principles valid up to that time. In other words, God introduces a change. There have been principles that have been in, in, in operation up to a certain point, and then God gives new revelation and validates some previous activity and gives new, uh, some new criteria. That is, he says, when the, from the side of God, three things occur. Number one, a continuance of certain ordinances valid until then. Certain things that have been valid continue. Second, there is an annulment of other regulations until then valid. For example, Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law instituted a sabbatical observance as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Also talked about the thou shalt not, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. Were those wrong before the giving of the Mosaic Law? Certainly they were. They were sins from the time of uh, Adam's fall. So they continued from dispensation to dispensation. There were, um, but there were additional things given in the Mosaic Law. Third, there is a fresh introduction of new principles not before valid, such as the introduction of the Sabbath principle in, in uh, Exodus 19, and then in the church age there is no Sabbath, but murder, adultery, bearing false witness, those are still sins. Those are still wrong. Not because they're in the Mosaic Law, but because they violate the character of God. Now, let's summarize. All of this is just by way of introduction to what is dispensation. There's so much confusion, I don't want you to be confused over these things. From God's viewpoint, a dispensation is an administration. From God's viewpoint, a dispensation is an administration. He manages or administers human history. From man's viewpoint, a dispensation is a responsibility. We're given certain responsibilities that we are accountable for. That means that there are certain obligations. Grace does not mean you can be irresponsible or have no obligations. Grace means that those obligations and responsibilities are not the basis for God's relationship with you or the means by which you gain divine approval. And third, from the viewpoint of progressive revelation, that God progressively gives new information to the human race so that Noah did not know as much as Abraham. Abraham did not know as much as Moses. Moses did not know as much as David. David did not know as much as Isaiah. Isaiah did not know as much as the Apostle Paul. From the viewpoint of progressive revelation, a dispensation is a stage in it, a stage in that progress of revelation. And it is the totality of all of human history that will stand as a testimony against Satan and his calumny against the righteousness and justice of God. Now, Let's move beyond this to just talk a little bit about the characteristics of a dispensation. The characteristics of a dispensation. 
First of all, there are three primary or major characteristics that are found in every case. There are three characteristics that are found in each and every dispensation. First of all, there is a change in God's governmental relationship to man. There's always going to be a change in how God is going to administer things in human history. One example is in Genesis 6-3 when the old King James said that God looked down on man and said, My spirit will not strive with man anymore. Well, the word in the Hebrew that's translated strive is a hapax legomenon. That means it's only used one time in the Hebrew. We don't really know what it means, but as a result of studies and cognate languages in the 20th century, it seems very likely that the meaning of that Hebrew word isn't strive, but is abide. My spirit will not abide with man anymore. And uh, tantalizing as it is and uh, tempting as it is to do a lot of speculation on that, it at least seems to suggest since the Garden of Eden was still present on the earth, it was where God dwelt, that there was a, a, probably a personal interaction with God by the human race up to the flood. And it's God's removal of himself from, the, from, human, from this direct involvement in human history, direct judicial involvement, that also caused him to delegate judicial responsibility to man. So there's a clear change in how God related to man from the antediluvian or pre-flood period to the post-diluvian period. Second, there's a change in man's responsibilities towards God. In the era of the Mosaic Law, man was responsible to worship God through Israel, specifically through the temple and tabernacle and the sacrifices. Those were abrogated at the cross so that in light of what Christ has done, we have direct access to God. Before the fall, I mean before the cross, there was a priesthood, a, a Levitical priesthood. After the fall, I mean after the cross, every believer is a priest. And then third, there must be a corresponding revelation from God to effect the change. You don't just look at the Scriptures and say, hmm, seems like this would be a good place to change things. We'll just insert a dispensation here. You know, it's based on clear revelation from God which affects the change. Then there are some uh, secondary characteristics, some secondary characteristics which are not necessary, are necessarily found in each and every dispensation. First of all, there is a test or responsibility, always a test of positive volition. Not necessarily in terms of different ways of salvation, but it always is a test of man's obedience to God. For example, in the Garden of Eden, the issue was, what are you going to do about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God prohibited eating, and man failed in that test and ate. So it's always a test of responsibility. Uh, failure. In terms of human failure, there's a fa- failure to fulfill responsibility uh, for, the, for the test governing uh, that economy, that administration. Second, there's a failure to trust God for salvation. Third, most people fail 
in any given dispensation, most people fail. There's just a few that don't. For example, at the end of the dispensation of human conscience, only eight people were obedient, and they survived on the, on the ark. And then there is usually divine judgment. These minor features are not always present, but they are in almost every dispensation. And then the uh, third characteristic is that there is always an identifiable steward, an identifiable uh, individual that stands at the beginning. For example, Adam in the both the uh, age of perfect environment and the one that followed, uh, although he does not survive it, in the church age it is the church as a whole, as a collective body of Christ that... Uh, uh, is the representative. Except for Adam and Christ, most of them don't live out the dispensation. Abraham died before his era was over with. Moses died before the end of the Mosaic dispensation. But they're usually marked by one individual. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and then Millennial Kingdom, Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So these are the characteristics, a change in God's governmental relationship to man, a change in man's responsibilities, and that there must be a corresponding revelation from God to effect the change. Now, what are the characteristics of a dispensationalist? What makes somebody a dispensationalist? Are they a dispensationalist because they believe in dispensations? No, not at all. There are... In fact, most theologians, whether they're covenant theologians or uh, Roman Catholic theologians or Lutheran theologians, recognize that there are certain distinctions in God's plan for history. Charles Hodge, who was a noted uh, uh, covenant theologian, reformed uh, Presbyterian uh, professor of theology at Princeton in the middle of the 19th century, uh, held to four dispensations, but he was not a dispensationalist. There are many theologians in history who recognize various dispensations. That doesn't make him a dispensationalist. Here's a little chart for you. The first two were not necessarily dispensationalists as we know the term today, but they did have a dispensational breakdown of history. They are very familiar. This just shows that everybody, I could have added about five or six more people to this, but I thought these were representative of different stages in the development of our understanding of dispensations. And they show how it's not just something new and gives you the realization that you don't have to hold to a certain number of dispensations either. Pierre Poiret lived from 1646 to 1719. He held to Six dispensations, creation to the flood, the deluge to Moses, Moses to the prophets, the prophets to Christ. Notice how he divided Israel up into two different stages. He called those the the creation to the deluge, the infancy, the deluge to Moses, Moses to the prophets, and prophets to the Christ as uh, young adulthood or adolescence, and then adulthood, manhood, and old age was what he called the church age and 
culminating in the renovation of all things. He didn't even have a clear idea of the millennial kingdom. Isaac Watts, who wrote many hymns that we love to sing, divided it this way. He had the early stages divided between innocency and the Adamical age from the fall to the flood. Then he divided the Old Testament era into three stages, three ages, the Noahical age up to Abraham, the Abrahamic age up to the giving of the Mosaic law, and then the Mosaical age. And then he just subsumed everything after the cross as the Christian age. James Hall Brooks was a Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis. I mentioned him earlier. He was Schofield's pastor. Notice how he broke things down. You have the age of Eden before the fall, followed by the antediluvian age, which means before the flood. From the flood to Moses, he called the patriarchal age. From Moses to the cross, he called, or to the incarnation, he called the Mosaic age. But he has a separate dispensation for the life of Christ, which he called the Messianic age. I think there's, I, I, I think he had good reasons for that, and, and I adopt that as well. Then he had the church age, which he called the age of the Holy Ghost, followed by the millennial age. Notice, no, no tribulation in there, although he did believe in it. See, most people don't outline the tribulation as a separate dispensation because it's a conclusion of Israel's uh, time period. And then Schofield has the breakdown that is most commonly known. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I like to change things up a little bit simply because I think that Schofield... Um, I think Schofield had a lot of good ideas, but I don't like some of his terminology, but it seems like everybody wants to idolize some particular individual's specific terminology and uh, in the modern context and battles on dispensationalism, so many guys are fighting for Schofield's terminology. I just have to be different. Innocency. I don't think it was a period of innocence, not in the sense that we think of that word. It's a period of perfect righteousness and perfect environment. Um, followed by an age of conscience from the fall to the flood, period of human government from the flood to Abraham, and then the period of the promise from Abraham to the law. Then you have the age of the law from Sinai to the cross. The age of grace is the current age. Followed, and, of course, he held to a pre-trib rapture, seven-year tribulation, followed by the messianic kingdom. But that just gives you a little idea of how different dispensationalists over the ages have broken things down. So I'm asking the question, what is a dispensationalist? And we're starting off with what it's not. It's not someone who recognizes that dispensations exist. Don't fall into that trap. Read somebody who happens to hold to three or four dispensations and think, oh, this guy's a dispensationalist. You'll get trapped. It has nothing to do with the number of dispensations, although, as I said last time, if we're going to be Pauline about it, we must hold to at least three at least one before the cross, one the present age, and then a future literal millennial kingdom. And then third, dispensationalism is not necessarily equivalent to being premillennial. Just because you believe Christ will come before the millennium, that's what premillennial means, pre-before the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, just because you're premillennial doesn't make you dispensational. Although I don't think that anyone who is pre-tribulational, which means the rapture comes before the tribulation, is not a dispensationalist. You can't get to a pre-trib rapture unless you're a dispensationalist. 
But premill doesn't mean you're dispensational. I know a number of men who are premillennial but are not dispensationalists. So what is it positively? Three things make you a dispensationalist. First of all, a consistent, literal interpretation applied equally to all Scripture against spiritualizing or allegorizing portions of the text, especially in relationship to prophecy, Israel, and the church. Let me break that down. A consistent literal interpretation. That is a, I didn't say a wooden literal interpretation. Somebody always wants to get wrapped around the axle when you say literal interpretation, and then as soon as it says, they go to someplace like First uh, Samuel where um, the bridegroom is telling the bride that her neck is like the Tower of David. It says, well, does that mean that she had bricks on her neck? No. Literal interpretation means that you interpret Scripture under all of the normal conventions of language, which means you recognize the use of metaphor and simile, but it does not mean that you go in and uh, allegorize these passages. When you take allegory, what you immediately say is that the literal historical meaning is, is irrelevant. That's the difference between an allegory and using something uh, as a as a, um, uh, a representative. For example, if something were if you were to look at the temple as allegorical, then there would not have to be. In fact, there would not be a literal historical temple or literal historical sacrifices. Allegory means that you're just using a fiction. It's much like a like a parable. There's not a literal historical reality underlying the analogy. So that destroys literal interpretation. So when God says, I will give Israel the land, if you spiritualize it, what land now means is not the literal geographical real estate bounded by the river of Egypt and uh, the river Euphrates and the, and the uh, uh, Mediterranean Sea and Arabia, what you're saying is that, oh, it doesn't mean, it never really had any reference to physical geography. It's just a spiritual term referring to heaven. And there are many people who hold that position. And today, when the, that, what that means is that believers will end up in heaven. You, you know that from certain songs, crossing over the River Jordan as a symbol of death and things like that. And that's where it comes from, is allegorizing those, those terms. So, dispensationalism is built on three key points. First of all, a consistent literal interpretation that is equally applied to every aspect of Scripture. Prophecy as well as doctrine, poetry as well as epistolary literature, epistolary literature as well as history. It's equally applied to all Scriptures reject spiritualizing or allegorizing portions of the text, especially in relation to prophecy, Israel, and the church. I can't tell you how many wonderful covenant theologians I've read who've defended literal interpretation of Scripture, then all of a sudden they start talking about prophecy and a future for Israel, and it's like, where did you get those ideas? All of a sudden they, become, they, they are spiritualized. 
The point is that if God literally fulfilled the first half of these prophecies in Christ, then He must be literally fulfilling the second half in the future. Second, on the basis of a consistent literal interpretation then, a consistent distinction must be made between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. That God has one plan and purpose for Israel. Israel is related to an earthly destiny. Israel has a specific plan and purpose related to uh, Jerusalem and the land in the future. And the church has a heavenly destiny as the bride of Christ and has a distinct role in history from that of Israel. This is really the acid test of a dispensationalist. If you believe there is a distinction between Israel and the church, then you are a dispensationalist. If you believe that God is going to restore Israel to the nation and restore all the land to them and fulfill His promises literally in the future at some time, then you are a dispensationalist, even if you don't know the Word or have never been taught it at wherever your background is. Third, God's ultimate purpose. In dispensationalism, the ultimate purpose of God, the overriding main theme of glory of God. The overriding theme of Scripture is the glory of God that God has instituted all of these different plans and programs and He's working in history in order to reveal His glory, the magnificence of His integrity, His righteousness, justice, grace, and love. In covenant theology, which is the most systematic of the replacement theologies, in covenant theology, salvation is, of, uh, is the main theme. The theme of history is salvation of the elect or the salvation of mankind. That is the ultimate purpose of God, the salvation of mankind. Yet that is a very... What's wrong with that? That doesn't account for the creation of the angels. It doesn't account for the destiny of the angels. It, It leaves many things out. So for dispensationalists, salvation is important, but it's only one program in God's overall plan God has other plans and purposes for angels and other creatures. So in conclusion, the essence of dispensationalism then is the distinction between Israel and the church, which grows out of the consistent plain interpretation of Scripture and reflects the basic purpose of God in His dealings with man in ultimate glory. The essence of dispensationalism is the distinction between Israel and the church, which grows out of the consistent plain interpretation and reflects the basic purpose of God in his dealings with man in ultimate glory. So, that gives us our introduction to what dispensationalism is. Now, we need to ask the next question. All of that was Roman numeral 1 by way of introduction. Roman numeral 2, how does God advance the dispensations? How does God advance? What is the mechanism for advancing from one dispensation to another? 
This is, as I stated earlier, it's through revelation. There is always accompanying revelation. God is the one, from his viewpoint, who determines the advance in history and shift in dispensations. And this is always given by means of a covenant. It's always expressed in terms of a covenant. Now, not all covenants instituted a dispensational shift, but all dispensations are marked by a new covenant. I know that twisted your brains. Not all covenants start a new dispensation, but all dispensations are started with a new covenant. So what then is a covenant? If you just want one word to hang it on, it's contract. A covenant is a legal contract between God and man. The interesting thing is of all the world's religions, it is only Christianity. It is only in the Bible that presents God as entering in to a legal contract with man and, and binding himself to the terms of that legal contract. Only in Christianity does God bind himself legally. And if you think about it, if you have an understanding of history, it is an understanding of biblical covenants that provided, especially if you look at how the, the uh, Reformers, uh, Reformation uh, believers, especially the Puritans, worked out a biblical theory of law and the absolute rule of law. Samuel Rutherford in his book, Lex Rex, Law is King, it's not the absolute rule of divine monarch. Even the monarch is under the law. All of this comes down from understanding how God relates to man on the basis of contracts and on the basis of law. So, definition. A covenant is a contract between God, who is the party, the first part. He institutes the contract, not man. God, who is part of the first part, who makes a sovereign disposition. It's up to his will. He's the one who initiates the contract obligating himself in grace. See, it's not that man... See, I've seen this in the, in, in the um, uh, charismatic issue and the question over tongues. Oh, I don't want to put God in a box. Oh, that's, that's such a distortion of the issue. See, whenever you say that God is not performing miracles giving through the gift of healings or revelation or speaking in tongues today, somebody always comes along and says, well, I'm not going to put God in a box. That's not the issue. The issue is that God revealed that He's going to do it this way or not. It's not that I'm putting God in a box. It's the issue is what is Scripture? How has God revealed that He's going to operate in this age? God operates differently in all the different ages. So, God obligates Himself and will restrict Himself in different ages. So, He obligates Himself in grace to bless man who is party of the second part. Two covenants are between God and Gentiles. Uh, really, I think it's one, it's one covenant. Since I wrote this, I've modified my thinking. The original Edenic covenant is modified, as we'll see in a chart in a minute. It's modified by the Adamic covenant because of the fall. That covenant is then modified again by the Noahic covenant because of the flood. But they all have basically the same stipulations. There are certain... Uh, hindrances to man on man's part because of sin that come into play, but they all are basically the same thing. So there's basically two covenants. There's the the one covenant between God and all peoples, really, not just Gentiles, because it would include the Jews as well. They come in later. So there's one covenant, and then there's the Abrahamic covenant, and all the covenants with Israel are just modifications and addendums to the Abrahamic covenant. And in terms of the, the covenants between God and Israel, you have the Abrahamic covenant. 
which is further developed in the real estate, what I call the real estate covenant. A lot of people call it Palestinian covenant. I don't like that because the Palestinian comes from the Hebrew word peleset, which is the term for the Philistines. and the, It was never their land. They never lived there. It's not Palestinian. It is a real estate covenant or land covenant that God gave to Israel. The Mosaic covenant with Israel, the Davidic covenant, uh, that the Messiah would come through the Davidic line, and then the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Only the blessings of the Mosaic covenant were conditioned on the obedience of the people. The promised blessings of the other covenants are unconditional. That kind of went off the screen there. There, The promised blessings of the other covenants are unconditional. Now, we're not through defining this at all. By way of introduction then, under our Roman numeral 2, how does God advance the dispensation? We need to have some definitions. Conditional covenant. What do I mean by a conditional covenant? This is a proposal of God whereby He promises in a conditional compact or contract with man by the formula, if you will. In other words, if you do this, then I'll do that. God's blessing is conditioned upon man's obedience. His promises in a conditional compact with man by the formula, if you will, to grant special blessings to man provided man fulfills certain conditions. Failure on man's part, however, will result in punishment. In a conditional covenant, God fulfills His terms. God fulfilling, in a conditional covenant, God fulfilling His terms is dependent upon man fulfilling His terms. If man fails to fulfill His terms, then God is free from any obligation to the contract to fulfill His part. All I'm saying there is the only covenant that's conditional was the Mosaic covenant. And in some ways, it's really not even conditional because God still maintained His Mosaic covenant with Israel. Even in disobedience, He fulfilled His side of the obligation that I will uh, punish you. And so in, in recent years, I have come to where I prefer to use terminology permanent versus temporary. That the Mosaic covenant was a temporary covenant. It was never designed to be permanent. But God... Although there are a lot of conditions, and there are conditions in the in the other covenants as well, but God never um, never intended for the Mosaic covenant to be a permanent covenant. That's the whole argument in Hebrews eight on why uh, it's called a new covenant in Jeremiah thirty one. It's called a new covenant because the old covenant was never viewed as being permanent. Even when God says, "If you disobey me," God said these negative consequences will occur, God never left the covenant. He still maintained His side of the covenant and He still punished Israel. So I I think that if we a more precise way of talking about it is temporary versus permanent covenants. The second category of covenant is an unconditional or permanent covenant. This is a sovereign act of God whereby He establishes an unconditional or declarative compact or contract with man obligating Himself in grace by the formula, I will. Abraham, I will bless you. 
God is going to fulfill what he says in the contract regardless of how the recipient responds. God is going to make Abraham's name great regardless of how Abraham responds. In contrast, in a conditional covenant, human failure means God does not have to keep his part in terms of blessing blessing man. Now, there are basically, really, I said one, there's basically two conditional covenants, the Edenic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. As soon as Adam disobeyed God, spiritual death entered the human race and he was barred from the tree of life. The Mosaic covenant also was conditional. The unconditional covenants are the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. They are permanent covenants as well. Now, that's a lot of information, so let's break it down in terms of a chart. There we go. Eight biblical covenants. They're the Gentile covenants. First, the Edenic covenant in Genesis 1, 27-28. This is abrogated by the fall. When Adam sinned, that ended the stipulations in 27 to 28, and they had to be modified because no longer was man living in perfect environment. This is followed by the Adamic covenant, which is a modification of the Edenic covenant. It's given in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, what we normally refer to as the curses. That ended with man's judgment on the human race at the flood. Then God entered into a new covenant, with Noah, called the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9, 1-7, through 7, and it is still in effect for everyone, Jew and Gentile. It is, an, it is the covenant that God has entered into. It authorizes and mandates capital punishment. It authorizes man to eat meat instead of be, and ends his period of being a vegetarian. And its sign is a rainbow. So as long as you see a rainbow in the sky you know the Noahic Covenant is still in effect. Then there are the Jewish covenants that are unconditional or permanent. These are all based on the Abrahamic Covenant given in Genesis 12, 1-3, through 3, which has three basic provisions. That God will give the descendants of Abraham a specific piece of real estate. That there will be a seed through him that will, through whom all the earth will be blessed. So three provisions, land, seed, and blessing. The land aspect is expanded in the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30. The seed is expanded on in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. And the blessing aspect is expanded by the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, I do not believe that there is a new covenant to the church. Every time you read about the New Covenant in the Bible, it always talks about the two contract partners are God and Israel and Judah. The contract partners, and we'll get back to this in much more detail as we go through these, in the Abrahamic Covenant, God is part of the first part, Abraham is part of the second part, and he says, through you, all the nations will be blessed. That is also true of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is with God on the party of the first part, Israel and Judah, the party of the second part, and it is through them, through the cross, that all nations are blessed. And through the church, because where there's no Jew, no Gentile, all are in the body of Christ. 
So the new covenant is with Israel. It is not does not begin until Jesus returns at the second coming, although because it was established at the cross, we benefit from its blessing provisions in much the same way that Old Testament saints were uh, Gentiles were blessed by association with Israel, even though they were not a party to the contract. And then there's the conditional temporary covenant, the Mosaic covenant given in Exodus 20, through 40, Exodus chapter 20 through verse 40. Now that introduces us to the basic covenant structure of the Bible. And next time when we come back, we will start off looking at the first covenant, the Edenic covenant, and the first dispensation. And we'll go through each one and give its characteristics and the key verses related to it, and the descriptions of that particular dispensation and how it changes and how it stays the same. And we will follow each one through history up through the millennium. And that will give us a good frame of reference for being able to understand the prophecy that we'll discover when we get into our study of Daniel. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you are the God of history that you have uh, outlined history from the Council of Divine Decrees and everything is the outworking of your plan and purposes to demonstrate your ultimate glory. And the centerpiece of history is the display of your justice and righteousness and love and grace on the cross. That Jesus Christ in his substitutionary atonement satisfied your righteousness and your justice. That he was a gift of your love to us that we might have freedom from slavery to sin, that we might have eternal salvation, and that we might in this age have the Holy Spirit given to us as a seal who indwells us and who fills us to, and who is the one who produces in us spiritual maturity, that this spiritual life we have today is unique in all of history, and it is a phenomenal thing that you have given us. And we pray that we might Uh, Be mindful of what a tremendous privilege it is to live in this time period and to have so much given to each and every ordinary believer that we might glorify you in our day-to-day lives. And we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've learned and help us to understand and assimilate these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.